three to beam up, Mr. Scott. Permission to come aboard, sir. Welcome to Now Playing's Star Trek Retrospective Series. We here at Now Playing will be going at warp speed as we watch and review all installments of the Star Trek movie franchise. Bringing you the perspective of a Star Trek novice, a casual Star Trek movie fan, and a former hardcore Trekker, we will be providing spoiler-filled critiques of this long-running movie franchise. Transmit now. Today we're talking about Star Trek Beyond, starring Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto, Carl Urban, Zoe Saldana, Simon Pegg, John Cho, Anton Yelchin, Idris Elba, and directed by Justin Lin. This is Mr. Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is the Now Playing co-host with perfect eyesight and a full head of hair, Arnie. Well, at least you have a full head of hair. Welcome back to Star Trek Retrospective Series. It's been a little bit of a while here. I'm so happy we're back to talking about Star Trek and what an amazing, incredible discovery to go beyond in the Star Trek universe. As long as it's not as dark as last time, I think I'm game for it. I just re-listened to our Star Trek Into Darkness podcast and we were marveling. Oh my God, it took four years to get a sequel to J.J. Abrams' Star Trek. Four years! Oh, how could it ever take that long? How long's it been since Into Darkness? Three years. <laughs> you know, I think they wanted to time it because this is Trek's 50th anniversary. And, you know, I usually think that studios, they get romantic about that kind of notion we need to have one for a big anniversary they wanted to get this movie out from what i understand this movie had a different script they weren't happy with it and they fired those screenwriters and hired new ones to do a rush job because they it was just that important that they have a trek movie this summer yes they hired simon Pegg and his friend to do the rush job i mean it's kind of interesting that I followed all of this because I am the former Trekkie and I was very excited to continue this, what they're now calling the Kelvinverse because the USS Kelvin was the ship that destroyed and all that. So I watched as JJ was going to do it. And then JJ said he was going to do Star Wars instead of Star Trek. <laughs> Which felt like a diss, right? I mean, you gotta feel, no, you know, obviously Star Wars is a bigger franchise, but that's a big war, right? When you, when you choose the other one, I'm going with mommy and not daddy. That hurts, right? Well, he was trying to get daddy to dress like mommy and put lipstick on like mommy and play the music <laughs> mommy likes, so. He's better suited for Star Wars, I do believe, or at least it felt that way judging on the last two movies. Then they were going to give it to Roberto Orsi, who was going to write it previously, then he was going to direct, and I think that's the script that they ended up not liking. Yeah. Orsi was out, the script was out, Simon Pegg kept tweeting and talking to the press like, I just want to make it. And so, I guess he wrote it. <laughs> do we know what the plot was of the rejected script? Did anything make it into this one? Nope. Simon said he didn't even read it. Yeah, there was nothing left. They wanted to bring it back, and I was a little bit happy. I mean, Peg seems to be a real fan of Trek. He wanted to be in it, and 
having a fan writing is a good thing. That said, I don't really know Peg as a creator. I know him as an actor, so I wasn't sure if that was necessarily a good thing or if he'd end up writing Paul in space. I thought he wrote Hot Fuzz or Shaun of the Dead. He didn't write those? He just acted in those? Yeah, he was involved. Yeah. It was a collaborative process, yeah. But I give the credit to those movies. I love Simon Pegg in it. But Edgar Wright, I I worship the man. And <laughs> yes. I, I see Scott Pilgrim that had no Simon Pegg in it, and it is my favorite Wright film. And so I find it hard to give Pegg too much writing credit for those films. I mean, those are all style and... Okay. I have seen a couple of things he had written solo. Let me tell you, it's not stuff that would exactly make me more confident for this. Run, Fat Boy, Run? Mm. Didn't see it. How to Lose Friends and Alienate People? Uh, the answer is make that movie. Oh. Ouch. I-, I assumed the best, but I didn't actually care enough to watch any of these. And yes, he was one of the writers of Paul, along with Nick Frost. So, yeah, I, I was scared I was going into Star Wars slapstick land. I mean... I did enjoy Spaced, though. If you ever see that TV show, that was oh, quite fun. Love Spaced. Edgar Wright made Spaced. Again, <laughs> I give him all the credit. And score another point for Arnie. You know, I have trouble finding enthusiasm for this new rebooted universe. Uh, longtime listeners know I struggled with the 2009 film. Eventually, I did turn the arrow from red to green last time, but then I kind of had the same sort of mixed feelings about Into Darkness. And so I did go back to rewatch that film. I don't feel like anything I've said in the past about this series is wrong, but I always feel like I like them in retrospect. The second time with the lowered expectations of home viewing, when it's not so in your face on the big screen, I think it does tend to play a little bit better. I'll go two for two. I'll say Into Darkness is not in any way a a great film, but it's completely watchable. I'm glad you said that, Stuart, because I had a similar uh, issue when I rewatched Into Darkness with my wife, who was a big Trek fan. She flat out said to me, we start the movie, she's like, now tell me right up, is it con? Tell me right now, I don't want to wait. So I told her. <laughs> and then when we had the second half of the movie, I had the exact same reaction to that I had the first time. I re-listened to the podcast that we recorded a few years ago as well to remind myself before we watched this movie. And I got to tell you, I had the exact same reaction each time I watched the movie. I st- feel the exact same way about Into Darkness, but I'm glad to hear you feel a little bit differently. Frankly, I feel a little bit differently about the 2009 Star Trek movie now. I was so high on it back then. And I've seen it five, six times since, and I've kind of ebbed a little bit. Perhaps Into Darkness has influenced my feeling on the new crew going into this new movie. Mm. In the four years since Into Darkness, I hadn't seen it again. And man, did my memory sour on it, especially in the shadow of The Force Awakens, where I felt like Abrams just did the same thing, basically a straight remake that he was calling a sequel, and... The more I thought about the ridiculousness of the reversal of End of Khan and the miracle blood of Khan that revives the dead and everything, I ended up hating Into Darkness without ever seeing it again. So I did rewatch it for this, and it put my hatred at ease. I went, no, I I agree with my original review. It's actually a pretty good film for three quarters and then just has a ridiculous ending. So, yeah. <laughs> What's bad about it is bad, and and that ending is a bad note to leave it on. And it is, you know, you could ask the question at the end that you do at the beginning. Is that con? I don't think it was a very good con, but as a movie... It was a con. It was a con job. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, 
it left them open to go anywhere. With the idea that Abrams gone, the screenwriters that made the first two gone, this could go beyond what they did before. And yet it didn't feel that way when I saw this trailer. I've got to say, hearing that the Fast and Furious guy got hired and watching a trailer that basically looked like they were turning the franchise into that... I really wanted nothing to do with this movie. I thought the trailer looked fine. I mean, I honestly want to start a YouTube channel because you could set anything to the Beastie Boy sabotage and it's badass. I want to do like the sound of music set to sabotage. <laughs> I think it would actually appear to be action oriented. I could actually, you know, when they go, ah, I'd have her spinning at the top of the hill. It would work. So you put sabotage on. I'm like, wow, this looks fun. Wait, this is freaking Star Trek? That was the disconnect I had. I was thinking it might be the Fast and the Enterprise. But again, as someone that didn't want this to become an action Fast and Furious franchise, it seemed like the wrong direction to go. I think the worst thing I could say about that trailer was it didn't make me want to see it or not want to see it. I felt it was so bland, so average, so pedestrian. And I think that's the worst kind of trailer you can produce. Like the recent Magnificent Seven trailer had me the same way. A trailer's supposed to get me interested in seeing something, not be complacent about it. Yeah, it did look generic, and it didn't look like Trek, and there wasn't many details about the plot, and, you know, losing Nimoy, and then losing Anton Yelchin on that freak car accident. It just seemed like there was just a lot of negativity swirling around this movie, and it was, I just kind of forgot it was coming out, honestly. You know, we were doing the Jason Bourne series, I was ready for that movie. I had forgotten we had committed to going back for lucky or unlucky Trek number 13. Yeah, and I have seen just about every Trek film since part five opening weekend with the possible exception of that last next generation one. I think I saw that it's final weekend, but this one Comic-Con was last weekend. I tried to make it to Trek. Timing didn't work out. That con is all consuming. <laughs> I ended up seeing this on a Monday afternoon at like 4 p.m., and I was one of three people in the theater. So it was actually a really great experience. I had almost a private screening. Nice. <laughs> I don't know, but sometimes an enthusiastic crowd helps. I saw a matinee too, but it was Saturday and there were people there and, and they were ready. And it was big format. It wasn't IMAX, but it was real D, 3D, big screen. I saw it on Saturday night, opening weekend, and my crowd was very tepid. No one really seemed to care. It was really weird. Like I was enjoying it much more than my closest neighbors, but I was in one of those theaters with those giant like barca lounger reclining seats and uh, giant sound blah 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 so it's kind of you're separated from the people you're watching the movie with even though they're in the same room with you if you know what i mean so we weren't on top of each other but my crowd wasn't over enthusiastic at the end they did clap which is always a good sign mm -hmm. but i could have been watching by myself for all i knew but i would say about half full Mm -hmm. Did either of you guys see this in that new format they're doing where during action scenes, two more screens pop up to the side and make it like 180 degree immersive? No, that sounds awesome. I didn't even know this existed. No, it sounds so Trek. Screens on the side, like peripheral vision. Yes, that might scare the shit out of me, though. <laughs> Yeah. It comes up like, oh my God, get away. Yeah, it's called Barco's Escape Projection System. And there's a trailer. It sounds like Barco Lounge. But <laughs> yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like, it I'm really like, does. It was nice. I don't need a Barco Lounge. <laughs> but what it has is they actually do additional filming to just make it completely immersive. And this is like the first really 
big film released in that format. They've done a couple others before, and they're filming a couple others, but nothing like franchise coming up. But yeah, this is their next way to get us to theaters, because God knows I started off by seeing Simon Pegg going like, bless you, thank you for giving a theater (laughs) some money. It needs it. It was almost like a support your local business when he said thank you for coming to the cinema. I had the same thing. It was prefaced by the young people. I know it's hard, but please don't look at your small screens during this movie. They were pushing, yes, the theatrical experience. Give yourself to a movie. Full screen. Yeah, I mean, I think people are used to having multiple screens, but the idea that it would all be towards the same <laughs> project, I think, is would be revolutionary. So we'll see how that goes. I, if I had known that it existed, I would have hunted that down and, and tried to have that experience. But you'll have to let me know if uh, there's another film out there that's going to have this, and I'll give it a whirl. I couldn't see 3D, by the way. My timing at my theater was like insane, like three o'clock in the afternoon and like 10 o'clock at night. It was like inconvenient to see a 3D for this movie. I found that very surprising. It looks like um, all the Secret Lives of Pets got the 3D screens mm. in, my, in my area. I don't feel like you missed much. Oh, I do. I actually really thought the 3D in here was pretty good, especially in some scenes at the beginning and in the forest in the middle. I can't say that it radically changed my experience, but... It was pretty well done multiple times. Yeah, you mentioned the forest, and that's where I actually felt like it hurt. Like, it would, it made it obvious that the willows blowing around in the trees were CGI. Like, it, it enhanced the fact that there was <laughs> artifice in the frame. And so all the things that were painted in were 3D, and thus kind of took me out. I did have one problem with my 3D, though. I guess I can knock it for this, and maybe it was my theater, Stuart. I found the way Justin Lin fast cut the action created a hell of a lot of ghosting and blurriness, Mm. and I- I had that, too. When they were invading the Enterprise, and we'll get into all this, I really had trouble seeing what was happening, and I tried taking off my glasses and everything so I could see better. I gotta tell you, it wasn't entirely clear without glasses on, either. It was very fast cut. <laughs> fast and furious. And that's what go. they hired. Why Why wouldn't it be? Well, let's talk about what the movie he made is, because I will say this. It didn't end up feeling very much like a Fast and the Furious movie. So, Arnie, if you got the plot, we can get into Star Trek Beyond. The USS Enterprise is three years into her five-year mission, but the job is starting to wear on her captain, James T. Kirk, played by Chris Pine. He is tired of the endless roaming and has applied to be Vice Admiral on the Starbase Yorktown. Things aren't going so much better for his first officer, Spock, again played by Zachary Quinto. Spock has found out that his time-traveling older self, Ambassador Spock, has died. Spock wishes to continue the Ambassador's work by resigning Starfleet and helping to rebuild the Vulcan community. More, in a desire to help procreate more Vulcan children, he has broken up with longtime girlfriend Uhura, again played by Zoe Saldana. But their internal struggles are set aside when they're given a rescue mission. An alien named Kalara claims to be a refugee from a science mission, and her ship crashed in the nearby nebula. Kirk and crew go to investigate, but it's an ambush. A swarm of ships ram the Enterprise, literally tearing it apart. And when the ship still puts up a fight, the attacking commander orders the saucer detached from the body. That leader is Crawl. Not crawl, as I put in my nose the entire time, but crawl. <laughs> and then he kind of looks like crawl. Played by Idris Elba. He and his troops board the Enterprise, taking captives, 
but Kral's top priority is to get an ancient weapon called the Abronath, a stone circle that Kirk was taking to warring species as a peace offering. With this weapon, Kral plans to wage war on the Federation, but Kirk hides the device in the retractable skull of Ensign Sill. Who's Ensign Sill? Well, was she wearing red? I don't think so. Okay, she might as well have been. The Enterprise crashes on the planet and the main crew are separated. Uhura and Sill are captives of Kral. Chekhov, again played by Anton Yelchin, is with Kirk exploring the planet. Carl Urban's character of Dr. McCoy is with Spock, who is healing from a wound sustained while crashing on the planet. And Simon Pegg's engineer Montgomery Scott is alone until he comes across J-Law another alien also trapped on the planet. J-Law has been hiding in a crashed starship, the USS Franklin, which has been missing from the Federation for over a hundred years. She found a way to cloak the ship and offers to help Scotty find his people if he helps her get the ship flying again, while she blares public enemy. But the clock is ticking as Kral gets still to give up the Abernath in exchange for Uhura's life, and with this weapon, Kral and his warriors, their swarm of ships, and the Abernath plan to attack the Yorktown. But before they launch, Kirk teleports in to rescue his crew. He and Chekhov were caught in one of J-Law's traps and teamed with her for this escape attempt. He rescues his crew, but Kral plans to have the ultimate victory as his army takes to space towards that space station. Scotty gets the Franklin flying again and they pursue Kral. And on board the Franklin, they discover Kral is actually a former Starfleet captain, Balthazar Edison, commander of the Franklin. The ship crashed in the nebula and his crew was stranded, with Kral blaming Starfleet, thinking he, a warrior in a pre-Federation time, was abandoned now that there was peace. But the planet reveals the secret to eternal life. By siphoning the lives of those around him, Edison's form changed into Crawl, and he has survived these hundred years plus. But the Enterprise saves the day by blasting the Beastie Boys. That disrupts- mm. <laughs> <laughs> Classical music! It sabotages the swarm's communications, making them crash into each other. Crawl boards the space station and plans to release the Abernath in the ventilation system, but Kirk gives pursuits, and after hand-to-hand -hand combat, Crawl and the Abernath are vented into space. The day saved, Kirk is offered the Vice Admiral position, but he turns it down to stay captain of a ship. And Spock stays as well, realizing that they make a good team, and gets back together with Uhura. The crew is given a new ship, the Enterprise 1701A, and resume their five-year mission as credits roll. Did you get that thing about how he stayed over 100 years old from the movie, or did you read one of those comic books that they used for, <laughs> that they always seem to do for this new reboot series to give you extra knowledge? I got it right out of this movie. I did extra research to find some of the myriad Easter eggs. I'm like, Floating Green Hand, I know that was in the old series. Which episode was that? I did have to dig in that regard. Okay. But this plot was pretty self-evident at the end of the movie. I can't say going through that I realized it was a mystery. They had a lot of strange things happening on this planet, but I never realized that they were all intertwined and that this crawl was going to be an ancient human. I just didn't get how that power came to be and how he's learned to siphon it, blah, blah, blah. That's the only thing I didn't get. It's yeah. in one of his captain video diaries. It's not a captain's log anymore. It's like the confessional on the real world. <laughs> but when he's saying, I found the way to extend life. Yeah. All right. That's that. Yeah, he could say that. I just didn't get it. Like, it's... it's <laughs> 
that's all there is to that. Arnie, you were worried Simon Pegg would turn it into a comedy. Uh, you must have been terrified by this opening when Kirk is going to be attacked by the cast of Gremlins, uh, who are a <laughs> warmongering, highly suspicious race that he has been tasked with appeasing with an artifact. And this is a pattern we're going to see throughout the movie. Little things that seem harmless when they group together can become a major danger. We're going to see that later with a swarm of ships. And here we see it with these little aliens. But is it wrong that I laughed a little bit during this then? Because it is kind of funny how suspicious these aliens were. Like, why would they give us something? Why don't they want it? You mean they <laughs> stole it? I loved it too. I had a really great time with it. And I loved how Chris Pine was still trying to be diplomatic the whole time, but clearly just not enjoying what's going on. It was really played well in the surprise that they're all little. It was really fun too. I thought the opening scene was lots of fun. Yeah, oh good then. All right. My only complaint is the CGI was terrible and the way they're, there's going to smash us and eats us. I'm like, are they Gollum? And are they using 2002 rendering skills? Because it didn't look that great. I thought of the, the trolls from Frozen, actually. I thought that's how bad they looked. <laughs> I feel like I'm always the most generous towards the effects. I thought they looked just fine. Again, for me, it was the fact that they were small and that he ends up... They have even trouble beaming him away because there's so much flurry around him <laughs> once they decide that they're all going to gang up on him en masse. And it really sets up the fact that, yeah, this is a Simon Pegg, Shaun of the Dead kind of conflict. Kirk has gone about three years into the mission and he's over it you know and we have these scenes that feel like Shaun of the Dead where like I'm a middle-aged guy in this drudgery role every day is the same I'm sent on these missions like you know he comes back from this thing his shirt torn he's like carrying an open bottle of champagne I did love the my shirt is torn again I mean that's such a Shatner reference Enjoyed that. I mean, they made that joke in Galaxy Quest, too, but... And you just get the sense that he... He's, well, we'll see. Once he finally gets to Yorktown for the R&R, everyone needs some time away. It feels like everyone is over it. And I think Trek is kind of having a postmodern comment on itself. We've had so many episodes. What more can we do here? What is there more to say with this franchise? Or should we just give it up? Is this a passe concept? I would think so the way some of this was going. There seemed to be a lot of been there, done that. It happens to be Kirk's birthday. Kirk isn't happy on his birthday. McCoy's bringing him liquor again. I expect him to go, damn it, Jim, what the hell's the matter with you? Other people have birthdays. Why are we treating yours like a funeral? (laughs) That was a great scene. (laughs) It was a really great scene. Carl Urban's like the MVP for me of this entire cast. Every (laughs) single movie, he's fantastic. He gets bones, but he makes it his own. He's wonderful in this movie. And he almost didn't come back. He did not have a contract for this. And he was like, after the way his character was put aside in Into Darkness, they had to really convince him. Justin Lin's the one who got him back. Oh, I'm glad he did, because, again, he's the MVP for me in this movie. I agree with you, Arnie. I thought he was going to pull out a pair of spectacles right there. (laughs) I think the spectacles and good hair line was a jab at Shatner, right? I mean, with his famous toupees, and, yeah, he got glasses in this scene. I think we're being told this Kirk is younger and more vital than that Kirk. We're going to get to this later on. I mean, they they keep calling back all different kinds of things from Star Trek movies. This is the third movie. They've destroyed the ship like the first time in Star Trek 3. I mean, the same thing over and over. But at the same time, 
for the first time with this cast, it felt strangely comfortable. Because it's been so many years since we started off with this new cast, and now I'm used to them in these roles. So bravo for this movie for making it seem like, okay, we were comfortable in these shoes to begin this movie. Yeah, no, I, I will want to second that. That's been my complaint, that this cast hasn't played well with each other in the past. That it was always, let's cut to a fist fight, let's cut to a jumping out of something, you know, and, and really work the IMAX. But I never felt like they were having moments where they, yeah, just sit around shooting the breeze at a bar. And this is also a scene that sort of sets up the big theme of the movie. You know, they laugh that they've broken into Chekhov's things and he's a Glenn Fittich man. He he doesn't have vodka. He has scotch. And I think that that is kind of what the Federation represents. That obviously Chekhov was exposed to scotch probably by hanging out with Scotty. And the Federation just brings different cultures together. It is a melting pot. And that is what defines it. And that's really what's going to be challenged. The idea that it incorporates other cultures is actually what the villain is going to be fighting against. Oh, actually, I just took that as a joke because in the original series, Chekhov, played by Walter Koenig, said, Scotch is made by Russian woman, you know, and he misappropriated everything saying it was Russian. And so <laughs> that's where I thought that was going. There's, I mean, Peg went deep with his references here. And so I thought it was cutting for that. Maybe you would be the one to catch them. But to me, it's something that I'll see throughout the movie. And again, I think it will be a central theme. You know, the fact that Kirk brought some artifact from another culture that was used in war to try and bring peace to a new civilization, and that set them off. Again, that it has such a diverse cast. I mean, we'll see. One of the big talking points before this movie opened is Sulu is a gay man. And so we have that when they're disembarking. We see him meeting his husband and his daughter. We have interracial and interspecies commingling. Chekhov is hooking up with green girls. and Well, green girls hook up with everybody. That's, That's what know. they do, Stuart. Yeah. I mean, I have a green girl right over here. After the, after the podcast, I'm going to go hang out with her. Kirk hooked up with green in the first movie. But you see what I'm saying. You know, the, the Federation represents assimilation, and that's going to be challenged. I have to say, in regards to the Sulu gay thing, my God was a big brouhaha in the media about what is absolutely nothing. And honestly, if I hadn't read so many articles on it, I might have missed it. I might have thought that was like his brother and he was patting him on the back. I mean, he sees a guy bring him his daughter. He puts an arm around the side. The two walk away. The guy's never seen again. That was the co-writer with Peg, by the way. No, no, he's back later on when, when Yorktown's under fire. We, we get a cut to him. Oh, we do? Yep. There's one shot of him and the daughter, but yeah, I know what you mean. You are correct in saying it's mostly there just to announce, oh, Sulu was gay. And I'm just saying they handled it ham-fistedly. I didn't think it was strong enough. They cut, for whatever reason, Sulu and this other guy kissing. And if you're going to have a gay couple, have them kiss. I mean, if I were meeting my wife after years in space, guess what? I'm not giving her a high five. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. But I do like when they came to Yorktown, they spent a lot of time showing us the city. Not too much time, but I felt in this beginning part, they kind of let the movie breathe and they let the characters breathe. And we get these moments that later in the movie, we don't get so many of those. But here I, I noticed them when they first happened and how I appreciated them. 
I like that when Kirk looked at Sulu and his husband, he's like, oh, okay. And then he moved on. Like, it's exactly what the whole brouhaha, I agree with you, was much ado about nothing for people. It's give me a break. But the whole Yorktown thing was just really well executed, especially since of how it comes back later in the movie. I thought it was really nicely done. And what we're seeing again and again is that everyone seems to be over it. Uhura is over Spock. I never thought that would last. I mean, honestly, who's surprised? No, no, she's not over him. She's over him because he wants to bang Vulcan chicks. She's mad at him. Yeah, she's really mad at him. Yeah, Yeah. I get the sense that she's the one that maybe ended it. But yes, he was the one that screwed up. And so, you know, he's thinking about exactly, maybe I should be going to Vulcan and that becomes really pressing in his mind when he's approached by fellow Vulcans and they tell him the bad news that we all heard last year. Leonard Nimoy (laughs) is no longer with us. I'm sorry. It is funny the way you said it. Like, we already knew. Um. (laughs) Well, you know, they had to address it. We knew they were going to bring it up. And you know what? Nimoy was one of my very favorites from that original cast. So it it did mean something extra that he has been playing a part of this new universe that he is not going to be here. I felt it. I felt that loss here. Yeah, there had been a lot of rumors that Shatner would come back for this one, and I think that might have been in the Orsi script, because that's around the time the rumors were really circulating, but I didn't know if they'd mention it. I mean, I didn't expect him to show up in part two, and the fact that he did was silly, so I could have just believed Ambassador Spock is off living somewhere else and never brought up again, but I think the way they handled it was really well done, really kind of touching, For us who've grown up with Spock, to be able to see him laid to rest finally, even if it is a little bit funny that his tombstone or whatever said he died at like 32 years old. But I also want to point out that, remember Indiana Jones in the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, and I'm going to hate myself for even bringing this movie up. I try not to remember it, actually, so... (laughs) I know, I know. I hate it, too. But there's a scene when they look at... Indiana Jones looks at that picture of Marcus on his desk, you know, and his dad, too, and the camera lingers there, and there's no purpose at all but to acknowledge, yes, our friends are not here for this adventure, whereas here in this movie, Nimoy passed away, and they use it, or at least they try to use it, for Spock's character arc in this movie, and what he does and why he makes the choices he makes, and then how he comes around at the end. So they use it as a plot point, which I thought was a very strong way to have your cake and eat it, too. Right, yeah. They weren't just taking a moment to say, here's a spotlight on someone that's gone. It's not just the who's dead Oscar night clip reel. Right. (laughs) It it, it literally is. All of these characters are looking at their life saying, I'm getting older. Am I doing what I wanted to? Again, I think of that Simon Pegg in Shaun of the Dead. You know, that is his middle-aged angst just coming through here of, is there a higher calling that I should be following here? Should Kirk give up being a captain if he feels lost at space? Should Spock go back and really finish the work that his other self was doing with rebuilding Vulcan? Even that little bit with Sulu, I get the sense that maybe he would like to just stay at Yorktown and not get back on the ship. He had a picture of his daughter on the console while he was flying, and Chekhov is not doing well with the ladies. In little and sometimes bigger ways, I get the sense that everyone is saying, eh, this could be the end, and then the plot rolls in, and that's going to be what gets them to commit or recommit to the Enterprise. I'll agree. I actually liked these character moments. They were reminding me of an episode of 
the one of the series, you know, any of the series. They usually have these kind of dramatic beats because they can't afford to be action, action, action all the time. So I was enjoying a more languid pace. I was also enjoying a complete lack of lens flare. My eyes did not hurt 30 minutes into this film. <laughs> but when the plot actually begins, it again feels like one of the television episodes. Somebody comes in with a distress call and Kirk is ordered by the Federation to investigate. There is nothing personal about this mission. There's nothing in the way of stakes about this mission. In the first movie, it was all about the person who killed Kirk's father. In the second movie, Kirk was out for revenge because Admiral Pike was killed. In this movie... It's a job. No, yeah, but I do like what the crux of it is, which is that they're at the very edge of what the frontier has explored. And this is a movie that asks, should we go on? The threat that's going to come from them is from the unassimilated, and that the villain is going to be the person that says the frontier is not going to get any further. You're not going to keep going. I kind of like that it wasn't a personal stake. I understand exactly what you're saying, and a movie is always more interesting when the main characters have a personal stake in what's going on. And I did get, even though I've watched much less Trek than you, Arnie, I did get this feeling like an episode of a Trek show, for absolutely. But I kind of like that it wasn't, yet again, a personal thing. Because later in the movie, when that kind of personal connection comes up, it was eye-roll-inducing. So I kind of like that this mission was part of their job, and we're getting that instead of, again, a personal connection for Kirk and Spock. And I wasn't expecting it. I wasn't expecting Justin Lin to even know there was a TV show. <laughs> I was thinking that he was going to make this the one with the most action because he was the least interested in its characters and its eggheadedness and its themes and all that. But I honestly feel like this is the one of the three that will be most like a Trek episode. I think we're all saying that. And to me, that is a big compliment to him and to this movie. I feared the same thing going in because I know somebody who worked in a minor capacity on this film and Justin Lin was telling people grab your flip phones instead of your communicators and <laughs> so he doesn't know the language but you know that can be hard to learn he can't speak Klingon I'll forgive him on that <laughs> You know, but I was also thinking about this when I was watching the movie at certain times my mind wandered that how much this reminded me of Star Trek Insurrection and not just in plot points and things like that, but how small it seemed. Mm -hmm. Yes, I couldn't get Insurrection out of my head down to the point of some of these relationship stuff between Uhura and Spock and the it's not you, it's me, almost the equivalent of do your breasts feel firmer? <laughs> <laughs> Insurrection is the one with F. Marie Abraham, right? Yes. Not yes. the action-y one that came after. I get those two confused. The ninth one, not the tenth one. Yes, the one that was sort of boring, the one that has the fountain of youth, and here we have a guy who's able to extend his life, and here, yeah, yeah. you know, the faces change, and, and there's mm -hmm. a lot of similarities, but also the plot is small, and they also in Insurrection, if you remember, it's a very simple solution if they just told the story in a straightforward manner. This would be a very short story to tell. Instead, they cut it apart like they did in Insurrection, so it's a mystery, and when you add all the pieces together, it's kind of thin. So that's why also I thought of Insurrection. Hmm, okay. Also, the Riker-Troy relationship there was really kind of reminding me of the Spock-Uhura thing. There's a lot of parallels there. Regardless, I have positive memories of that movie, although I admit you guys are right. It was very small, and I found that charming. It wouldn't be how I'd want to see every movie, but it is 
fine to do that every now and then. And again, it wasn't what I was prepared for. But let's talk about the villain here, because yes, I did not realize it at the time. I believed this alien chick when she showed up and said, we were in trouble and you need to come help us. I knew there was going to be an enemy and maybe she wasn't telling them the whole story, but I did not know that she was part of the gang and that this was all a ruse to get very specifically the crew of the Enterprise because the villain, Crawl, has a history with the Federation. I had an issue in watching this film. I was actively engaged, I was thinking it through, but at no point did I realize it was telling me a mystery. It drops things, but the way they're delivered didn't intrigue me so much as go, oh, Federation ships on that planet. I couldn't even really make out what she was saying. I went back and found a transcript of that she was on a science mission and her planet crashed in the nebula. When she comes roaring in there babbling and there's like double speak because she's speaking an alien tongue and the translator is translating for her. I guess universal translators have gotten a downgrade since the 60s, but I was really even having trouble following. I just got the gist. She's in trouble, needs people rescued. Kirk, go. I thought it was really funny when the Universal Translator had like, the voice is like three octaves higher than her actual voice. <laughs> Apparently <laughs> but- <laughs> it's some YouTube star. I kid you not. Like, Oh, really? Yeah, they got some YouTube star who created a fake language for a previous Abrams film. And now she's doing the English part here. So good on you, YouTuber. Congratulations, you broke through. But Kalara is not the interesting thing here. I want to get to Idris Elba, who is an actor we have seen on Now Plague many times, and usually I enjoy, and never have I seen him undergo so much prosthetics. I thought it was Adwell Akinui Agbahi from the first Bourne film. I mean, that's how under how much prosthetics he is, the one who was Mr. Echo on Lost. Oh, you're talking about Wambosi. Yes, Oh. No, Idris Elba, come on. I mean, this guy... Oh, no, I when I finally saw the credits, it went, oh, Idris Elba. Yeah, Ghost Rider 2, and Prometheus, <laughs> and... <laughs> Thor's Bouncer. <laughs> yeah, Thor's Bouncer, and Pacific Rim. I mean, I like this guy. You started with Ghost Rider 2? I forgot it was him until about halfway through the movie. Like, Isn't Idris Elba... Oh, it's, it's him! And I, I completely forgot, and that's good for him for making me forget. It's rare, right? Like, he's a really good-looking guy. Normally, these, like, character actors, Christopher Lloyd will get under prosthetics, Lon Chaney, you know? Like, it's weird that we have a guy this handsome that's like, I'm not going to show you my face. I thought that was a strange choice. We eventually see it, though. It's actually kind of a reverse, and I did appreciate that. I've complained on so many podcasts how we start with this human, he's boring human, boring human, then for the climax, he becomes super alien or super beast. And here we we have the super beast who's eventually going to transform to the human. Right. Right. And you're right. They build him as this mystery, although I have two minds about his plot. I feel like there's two different motives, and one I understand and one I'm not so sure. But we do know that he wants for sure, right at the beginning, he knew it was going to be the Enterprise showing up, and he very much wants to disable the boosters, take them down, take away the crew. It's all so that he can drain their life force and remain alive. How Did he know it was the Enterprise? He's been, like, listening in, right? We discover that later, that he was listening in to Yorktown through his E.T.-type 
transmitter thing. I don't know exactly how he got that frequency, but he was able to do it. Right. And somehow he knows that they have the artifact. What he really wants is not even the Enterprise itself, but just the fact that the Enterprise had tried unsuccessfully. Imagine if he, it had worked. Imagine if he had given it to the Tanaxi. I mean, then there wouldn't have been a movie here, but because they were unsuccessful in giving away an ancient artifact that comes from the planet that he is now marooned on, this is the central battle for much of the movie, is how how do I get the artifact? So the artifact came originally from this planet in the nebula, recovered by the Fioban when it was ejected into space because it was so dangerous. And then it was going to be given to the Tenassi and it made its way back here. That's really lucky. <laughs> <laughs> I like when they were destroying the Enterprise and attacking the Enterprise right here with the scene we're introduced to the character, the villain. I kind of liked while they were destroying the Enterprise and they were capturing the escape pods that I realized all that. That they weren't trying to destroy the ship, they were trying to disable it. That they weren't trying to let the crew escape, they were capturing them. And I was following step by step and getting a little bit curious about what is his master plan here? And there's something more to it. So then I figured out, okay, the Enterprise is a trap and all that. Everything came to be. It wasn't very hard to figure out. It was clear as day on the screen. But I kind of liked that it let the audience in on something a little bit in this amazingly weird nanobot kind of CGI scene. It was a little bit of uh, curiosity in the middle of an action scene, which I applaud again to the director for giving me something more than I expected. This was where I had trouble seeing, but I found the space battle to be very cool. That swarm of ships that just ram and cut the Enterprise apart. I had seen the trailers, I'd seen the Enterprise appear to be destroyed, and, I mean, the Enterprise appears to be destroyed in every single film. There was the <laughs> whole poster in Into Darkness, but I kind of assumed it was going to be here, but I thought it would be like Generations, where it's at the very end. No, this is going to be what traps the crew here, because let's face it, this would all be very easy if they just called for backup, right? But... They can't call for anybody. They can't fly away. It's going to rip the nacelles off. I can say that was definitely a unique attack. I've seen nacelles blown off by phasers, but never by battering rams. They're called bees, these little... He's seen as like the head of a hive, and they all do his command. And again, I think that's the theme of this, is that they're uniform. There's no diversity. They all do what he says, and they kind of sting. You know, like that's the thing, is that they just kind of land, and it's like a wasp needle that just bust through the wall and out they shoot. So it's, it is like watching the Enterprise be swarmed. And I thought it was a cool action scene. Now, apparently, Peg and the director had a big fight about how this was going to go. Peg did not want to destroy the Enterprise again. He was like, you know, they did it in the third movie of the original generation. I don't want to have too many callbacks. That's why we got in trouble last time. And Lynn was the one that said, no, we absolutely need to maroon them here. You got to take the ship out. I want to have this spectacle. And so I think he made the right call. I'm going to side with Lynn. I actually love watching the Enterprise go down. It feels emotional, exciting. It gives us action where we've been craving it. We've had enough time with characters. I really like the scene. And here I thought it was Peg doing another callback. Third movie, destroy the ship. I agree with Arnie on that call. I thought they were calling it back on purpose. I liked the destroying of the Enterprise with the bees, where I had trouble following the action sequences, Arnie, is when they started boarding the ship and all the cutting and all the shooting. I had a, a, the steady oh, cam yeah. stuff. It was killing me. Oh, 
it was so blurry. I'm glad to know it wasn't just my theater, my 3D, because I was really getting aggravated that I couldn't see the fights. And it's so quick cut, especially Crawl versus Kirk. That was just, let me know who wins. But we all agree, good scene, right? The space part, yes. The ship part, not so much. And man, Gamora here, or Uhura, or whatever you want to call her, she gets some <laughs> hand-to-hand combat going. It was awesome. I'm glad she stepped up and let her kick ass. And, and I liked how each of the cast members we care about get a moment for us to know where they are. <laughs> so yeah. we can all follow where they're going. That's nice of them. I, I kind of felt, though, that it was so hard to follow that, even though, Stuart, I was enamored by the special effect and the idea of how they, how they destroyed the Enterprise, like we just talked about. That Steadicam stuff left the bad taste in my mouth here and then when it came back later, uh, especially. For me, I was blaming the 3D and the ghosting. But you're right. It may just be Lynn's making it too fast and furious it's blurry and so maybe that's i don't know it's a quibble for me but i mostly really dig the scene and it allows this cast to now have in sort of a wish fulfillment you know they've all been wanting to have their own life to split apart what is it going to be like act two is all about them off on their own and you know figuring out that they all need each other well they're not on their own they get paired up with each other except for scotty who makes a new friend yeah, Scotty particularly. This is where they featured it in all of the trailers that I saw. I mean, it is straight out of the seventh Furious movie where Paul Walker is like hanging off the edge of a cliff <laughs> on a semi and runs up it just as it flips over. Was that the seventh or the sixth? Because it was the seventh. Okay, that was the one <laughs> Lynn didn't direct. But the cinematographer did. It is the same cinematographer for both films. And I think he was like, hey, I know how to do the shot. You want to know the scariest thing? This Star Trek film had a budget barely above that of Furious 6. Well, that was substantial budget. I mean, that's not like, you know, an art movie. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> there you're just doing some stunts. Here you have to create whole worlds. And I think that's why the seams are showing a little bit. But yes, they get down to the planet. I did think the 3D looked good here. And Scotty encounters J-Law. Not to be confused with J-Lo. No, but to be confused with J-Law, Jennifer Lawrence, they actually just were writing this and said, we want her to be Katniss. What do we name her? J-Law. Oh. Oh, I didn't get that at all. I was, you know, she's got all these holograms here. I was thinking of J-Lo and the holograms. I'm like, what's another cartoon? Gem and the holograms. <laughs> yeah. That movie bombed last year. I don't think anybody's naming their kid Gem. <laughs> but this actress, it, it didn't occur to me when watching it, but we saw her last year in Kingsman. She was the woman with all of the blade legs, and she gets to do similar things. That was her? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know Oh, that. my God. You know, she kind of had an ethnicity to her in Kingsman that I couldn't place and here underneath all that makeup and I just didn't see it but man I, I love her in Kingsman I've seen that movie a good dozen times now I think she's pretty good here no she is I like the actress the character there's not much to this character despite how much we get of the main crew there's a lot of new characters that I feel we could have spent more time with and don't and so I never quite get her backstory of how she landed there, why she's fighting off yet like a fourth race of aliens that are there that aren't related to Crawl, and how Crawl doesn't know where he left his ship, <laughs> so she's hiding on it. Well, they explain why he can't find the ship later, but the guys she was fighting, I kind of like that because it told me that other people who've come to this nebula 
have gotten destroyed like the Enterprise, and there were other escapees, and now they're fighting amongst themselves for survival, kind of like the uh, the Predators movie we saw with um, all mm. those years ago, right? And on that planet. Yeah. So I kind of figured that out, and I kind of like that. I agree with you that Jayla character is kind of a convenience character, uh, and they try to give her something later, which is what I'm talking about with the eye-rolling. I honestly felt that she just needed to be there like Donna Murphy needed to be there in Insurrection. You know, she was a means to an end for the crew to get to the end of this mystery. You know, we don't need anything else from her. I, see, to me, I think she represents the idea of being on your own, that she, you know, has been outcast. She has lost her family. We know she hates Crawl because Crawl has basically sucked all their life force. The reason why he's able to stay alive all these years is that he hooked him up to these pipes. We'll see it later and, you know, basically just drinks their life force. And so he must have done that to her family, and she's the last one left. She's going to learn what it is to trust people, to form a team. And at, at the beginning here, you feel like she might kill Scotty, you know, as much as work with him. And she will slowly learn and, and be accepted as a member of the Enterprise. What you've said is there. It is not a dominant theme of this movie. She is not distrusting of Scotty for more than half a scene. She was distrusting of Kirk and Chekhov when they fall into one of her traps for a total of 15 seconds till Scotty says they're cool, they're with me, and then she's fine with them too. I don't get her as a threat at any point so much as an immediate ally. No, but her story in general, the fact that she's considered as important as rescuing all the people that Crawl has kidnapped, that he's got this whole like Smurf Village concentration camp where Sulu and Uhura and actually my favorite character. I didn't even remember this character, but now I love Keenser, the little guy. He was the Oompa Loompa in the Charlie and Chocolate reboot. Oh, and- yeah. I've, I was so happy. Happy. I said this with Into Darkness too. Every movie I'm on the edge of my seat is Keenser coming back. That, that <laughs> mm-hmm. he, he's my favorite part of the Kelvin verse. Yeah, I, I love him here, and he doesn't do that much. He sneezes and it gets a, a lock. I guess he's got acidic like sinuses or something, but he's able to burn away their locks and they're able to break out for a little bit and try to send a distress signal. Yeah, I thought that was really funny actually, and I like that scene. I like that Sulu and. Uhura gave a go at it, you know, good for them. You know, they're leading the group. I I really like that they gave Sulu a little bit to do, but we've talked so many podcasts now that Sulu always gets the shaft. He doesn't get much to do much in this at all. I mean, Uhura gets her moments. Even Chekhov gets a couple of scenes with Kirk because he's hanging around there. But poor Sulu, his big scene is with Alien Snot. (laughs) he'll get his redemption the ending is built on the idea that they're all going to get one cool thing to do because as a team they're stronger than when they're on their own but yeah I do feel like Kral is more interested in Uhura he is threatened by the fact that she sacrificed herself so that Kirk could get away with the artifact and he's not used to that why would anyone do that that's not the kind of thinking that he's used to at this point even Jayla gets her moment at the end as well everyone does get their one big moment scene even for 10 seconds so I agree with you there about Sulu later, but I, I kind of liked that they used Uhura's simple act to give the villain pause. They, there are a lot of things like that in this movie that they seem like a bit of a throwaway bit, but actually it ties in more than you think it would. And that was good. I'm not saying this movie is like the best screenplay ever written, but I do like that it ties in more than you think it would or it it actually has to to make it work. It doesn't have to tie in it much at all. And I was just shocked that the sensor dish detached. I'm like, I thought that it was a new feature to the D. Oh, you mean the big saucer? 
Yeah, the sacrifice Uhura makes is jettisoning the saucer. I'm like, they can do that this early? Yeah, I thought that was cool. And it gives Kirk and Chekhov something to do. They're going to explore that wreckage with the traitorous alien medic, Kalara. I guess they must have suspected something in order to tell her that they've hidden the artifact here when, in fact, it's in the head of one of Krull's prisoners. Yeah, this was where I felt like they could have perhaps been a bit more efficient, where she's like, you have to help my people. And then Kirk's like, you betrayed us. And she's like, well, I had to in order to save my people. And now you must help me save my people. And then she <laughs> betrays us. And you betrayed us. And then she gets squashed. I'm like, what a useless flipping character that was. Did she not ever have people? Was the whole thing a lie? I'm sure she had people. I'm pretty sure they were eaten to keep Krell alive. Yeah, uh, okay, so not anymore. I got the sense that the whole act by this point was a lie and that she was a pally. But Krell doesn't have many friends and he's written in a way to feel like he is in it on his own, but he's got this swarm around him and he's got a couple henchmen, one of which is responsible for killing Jayla's family and one of them is this chick. I just got the sense that she uh, had made up this whole story just to lure the Enterprise there. I have two things in this scene. One, that whole thing about hiding the artifact in a person's body, that seems like an HR nightmare to me. HR nightmare, like uh, human relations or HR Giger? Because that's what I was getting out of that. <laughs> <laughs> Very well played, sir. No, I HR like your office, like it's, you know, will you hide this in a bodily crevice for me? Not a good idea. <laughs> uh, number two is that I never knew that you said the saucer could detach. The whole thing is that Kirk and Chekhov make the saucer lift off with some sort of I guess in the Star Wars universe, it would be like repulsor lifts. I never knew that that could happen, that there was engines on the saucer that could make it float and flip over. That was kind of neat, but I don't get that. I, that's a new power. It's kind of like, you know, in the they talk about in Scream, like the third movie here, so all of a sudden a new relative or a, a new power you didn't know you had. Well, here all of a sudden, the Enterprise is able to do something it never could do before. Unless I'm mistaken, Arnie, that we've never seen that before. I don't think I'm wrong. No, but I can't honestly remember what was in every tech journal I read when I was a teenager. Oh, I'm disappointed, Arnie. I'm disappointed. I just... <laughs> Here, I didn't even get so much that they were able to control a repulsor so much as Kirk was shooting at something trying to get a reaction. He didn't quite get the reaction he wanted. He got a massive explosion. But that the bottom glowing dome thing was some sort of power source they were trying to get a reaction out of. You know, yeah. it's Lynn. He knows that this one is kind of talky. And once it's dispersed, it does feel a little bit like the thrust of getting Kroll. We lose our way with that. I think that there's many good subplots going on, but it may feel like not a lot is happening here. So he's got to throw in an action scene. This one feels like an ode dedicated to, like, the State Fair potato sack slide. You know how, like... You know, you get up on top of those slides and, and like ride down on a potato sack. The whole thing, they're just sliding and sliding and sliding, you know, sliding down the hall here and there and then finally sliding down the face of the dome. It was a fun way to do the scene. It felt original in that way. There's a lot of sliding in this movie. There was some of it when the ship was being blown apart and losing gravity. Mm -hmm. There's this when the dish is flipping. There's more at the end. Justin Lin does not like gravity. <laughs> Yeah. I had trouble following this scene even more than the breach into the Enterprise earlier with Chekhov and 
Kirk were jumping around from place to place and avoiding this and that. I had no idea where they were. I had no idea if they were in a safe hallway or not. I got really bad, not vertigo, but I just couldn't follow who was moving where and who was hitting what. And and so when the whole thing blew up and they shot the thing and the whole thing blew up, I'm like, oh, okay, good, this is done. I didn't really understand, as Arnie mentioned a second ago, I didn't really understand that they were on basically a bomb and that it was going to blow up. I mean, if they explained it, that's fine, but I was getting so confused that I didn't remember by the time it blew up. I'm like, good, let's move on from this lousy scene. No, I wouldn't use it lousy, but I'll say this much. If they wanted to, you know, stop the evil Kalara, they they wouldn't have to, like, drop the ship atop her. I mean, she didn't seem like she was that much of a threat. But there were other baddies that kind of showed up. And again, it's all about creating a mystery about where did Kirk hide the device. And and that is something they keep going for much of it until Crawl actually finds out. You know, he starts threatening to execute crew members and Sulu looks like he's going to be killed. And so Insensil is the one that opens her head and says, all right, here it is. Meanwhile, we also have, you know, a pairing that must always happen in a track. You know, the sour, disgruntled bones being paired with what is now a sour Spock. Yeah, Spock got impaled. They flew an alien ship to escape. They didn't get on one of the standard escape pods. The aliens, they pulled a move right out of Battlestar Galactica, the reboot series, where they just crashed the ships into the Enterprise and board through them, and they take one of those and hit reverse and escape that way. But in their crash landing, Spock has a big shard of metal right next to his heart, which is where our liver is. And McCoy actually does some medical stuff instead of using his medical hands to defuse bombs like last film. So plus on that. And does a little assimilation. He has to take a piece of the alien metal and use his phaser to cauterize the wound. You know, again, a theme you'll see throughout is the idea of of taking new technology and working with what you got. Yeah, I like that a lot, actually. I thought that was pretty clever. Arnie, I have a question for you. Maybe this was not in your tech manual, but someplace else. Spock is half human and half Vulcan. It was a big kind of plot point early in the 2009 reboot. So Spock is half Vulcan, but his physiology is all Vulcan? Yes, His blood has always been green. His heart's always been in his stomach. I mean, it probably wouldn't work if, like, his organs were all jumbled and his heart and liver were on top of each other. No, I agree with that. But so he's half human because it's convenient for the plot. Then, I mean, wouldn't his body be, I don't know, just, I don't know. This is where my mind is going because... Because the movie is not engaging you. (laughs) It sounds like it. Exactly right. So I'm enjoying the movie to a point, but then I'm always figuring out these, like, I'm I'm never fully engaged in everything that's going on because my mind's wandering. And one of these things is this, because Spock also wants to go back to New Vulcan and help populate the species. But I'm thinking, wait a minute, he's half human, half Vulcan. So it's a great thing he wants to do that. It seems like he's only half human when it's convenient, as opposed to he's actually half human, half Vulcan. You know what it feels like to me? He wants to do something that will make him Vulcan. He feels inauthentic by being with the Enterprise, by being assimilated. He's not really down with his people. And his true self, the Spock Prime, was doing the work of creating and rebuilding that planet. Now that he's dead, that work may not get done or done in a rapid manner. And so I think he's really thinking like, 
like Kirk, am I really my best self? Am I really doing work that matters? The fact that he's going to be dying for much of this movie, I think, helps keep that perspective of how much longer I got and am I putting my abilities in the right place are what's sort of tormenting here. But also, I just think that this is pretty good comedy. Now, I've already cited... I don't really like Quinto in this role. And complaining about him being angry and sour is like, you know, at this point, it's like complaining that Shatner is hammy. It is what it is. (laughs) It is what this character is. And I just have to accept it. But I feel like McCoy's playing off of him allows him to be funnier than he has in the previous two movies. And he actually even laughs. He cracks himself up and McCoy's like, you're delirious. But I felt like Quinto broke his shell. I am wondering why he laughed. Like... I didn't get that he was a Spock down with his emotions. And so to see him laugh, it did remind me of a couple episodes of the old series, but it seemed really out of place and not explained. Maybe he literally was delirious. Yeah, I took it as that, but I also liked it that he did it. I got the whole horseshit thing was pretty funny, too. I liked that, too. Oh, my audience, all four of us, big laugh. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. But the point is that the whole thing with Spock and McCoy, regardless of the whole physiology thing that took me out of the scene... The banter worked for me as well. What's funny about what you said about Quinto in this role, Stuart, is this time I felt that his wig was really obvious. And before I thought he looked more like Spock. Here I felt he looked like a wig. Yeah, this was a bad wig. This was awful. Yeah, but as far as his personality and as far as him playing Spock, I thought this was his best Spock yet, especially early on when he was lamenting about Nimoy and when he makes the jokes that later on with Uhura's necklace, all that stuff I felt was really good Spock. Mm-hmm. And that was a surprise that he would give Uhura not only radioactive jewelry, but basically that he's tracking her phone, that he's like so jealous that he just needs to know where she is at all times. I don't think he did it on purpose. I think he literally gave her something because it was his mother's Mm -hmm. and ended up realizing in a pinch that he could do this. Uh, Ah, okay. You're probably right. Yeah, because that's not Spock. No, that was the joke in there. He gave your girlfriend a tracking device and he did a Jack Benny kind of pause and said that was not intentional. Something Mm -hmm. like that. It was really, it played really well. I thought he was, his timing on that was perfect. Yeah, I wasn't sure. I'm like, wow, is Spock a stalker in this new universe? But no, you guys are right. You've cited it correctly. It's just happenstance that it serves this purpose because once everyone kind of comes together in the Franklin, they've got to save everybody else that's in the concentration camp. And this is very, very Justin Lin, right? I mean, the fact that there happens to be an ancient motorcycle right there, and it happens to be souped up, and Kirk happens to have been able to ride wheeled vehicles because his dad, this was in the first one, collected antiques. Well, you know, the way I see it is, what we're going to end up finding is that the Franklin was, in fact, the ship of Crawl back when he was a human being that was part of the Federation. I think they've done a lot to draw parallels between who that man was and who Kirk is heading to be, that Kirk is this lost figure, and if he feels like he keeps going further and beyond, let's use the title of the movie, but if he keeps going beyond, that he might end up being like Crawl. So, like, I think it makes sense that Crawl, when he was a human, liked motorcycles too, that they would have both enjoyed going joyriding together, seems to fit. You know what I thought of? He revealed the USS Marshall was a Federation ship. I thought of B4 from Star Trek Nemesis. 
how convenient that an extra data is around, mm-hmm. or how convenient an extra starship is around. And that was the cynical Brock coming out there. Yeah, it's better than that, though. I mean, I, I get you're right. It's, it's, it's a contrivance, but I mean, I didn't really like the movie you're referencing. So I, I to me, <laughs> I mean, I'm having a good time. I just want to put it out there. All my misgivings within 20 minutes about what I thought this movie might be, it is not. And when Lynn wants to do his Fast and Furious bits, I don't feel like it's cheapening the Trek. I feel like we're getting a classic Trek episode. So yeah, let's throw in a, an action scene every now and then to wake people up. And I think it really works. I think the chemistry, I'll go ahead and say it. I think that this is the best this newscast has been together. I agree with you there, Stuart. There's no arguing there. I mean, if you're going to say they're going to do an old Trek here and there and things like they used to do, you can throw in Fight the Power. We've kind of skipped over that a second ago. A 20th century song put in a Star Trek movie. Hooray, <laughs> I get to bring it up again. I'm sorry. But you know what? If you're going to do it, just own it, people. And they did. They put it in there, and they do it later on. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Oh, yes. My issue is I did roll my eyes at Public Enemy, but I was actually... I actually thought, well, at least it's not the Beastie Boys. <laughs> That's funny. The other problem I have is this crew that Kirk is saving. First of all, I'm not even sure how many survived that crash and how many died. You gotta figure there were pretty heavy casualties. Yeah, difficult to say, and and we're not really to think about it that way. We want to just concentrate on the positive, that there are crew members that did live that need rescuing, and that no man gets left behind. (laughs) Well, lots of men get left in the wreckage, but I think we're supposed to focus on the main seven and not supposed to focus on this crew, this rescue. When they go into the nebula, Kirk gives this little speech like, we've been through a lot together, and what this ship has that no one else has is this crew. The crew that does nothing except for the one ensign who puts something in her skull, and then we don't really see the crew again. We see Uhura and a whole bunch of extras milling about, and (laughs) then they get rescued. We don't see them again! They just keep disappearing! Yeah, I mean, the red shirts and the cameos and the anonymous, you know, the Tyler Perrys, as it were, the all the stray people, Whoopi Goldberg serving drinks, whatever it is, those people, yeah, they're around in some cell somewhere else. They, I mean, come on, this movie is already feeling a little bit unfocused because they have to keep showing different areas where the crew is dispersed. You don't want to meet new characters that are also dispersed sitting in a jail cell. I mean, all that we need to know is that it is the Federation's mission to not leave people behind, that everyone must be beamed back, that rescue counts for everyone, including Jayla, that as we get to this climax, Kirk is not going to leave her behind either. She's going to work as a sniper while he dis- uses a distraction technique on the motorcycle. And then he's going to come back while she's fighting her nemesis and make sure that she gets beamed back as well. I thought the callback to Jayla's power earlier in the movie when they introduced her character with the holograms and they used it here with Kirk and the motorcycle was a brilliant idea. I liked, again, how I mentioned earlier in this podcast, how little things that in earlier in the movie came back into play when you didn't expect it. So very well done there. I get your point, Stuart, about not really caring about the crew, but this entire climax of Kirk making the distraction was so every crew member could get out. And so that was kind of nice that they acknowledged he has a whole crew. The motorcycle bit, it was fun, it was fine. 220th century? It just didn't feel Trek. He's on a motorcycle. So it, it wasn't even 20th century to me. It was more like, this is not an action scene I typically... You know what? We talked about this again in Nemesis when they're on those little jeeps in that middle of that Black Hawk Down area in the, in the desert. It's kind of like, this doesn't really feel like a Trek 
seen, even though there's beaming out. We had seen Kirk in his early days when he's thinking about applying the Starfleet on the bike. I mean, it's not like it's never been a part of his character. It's We identify it with it, kind of. So it doesn't just feel like a Jeep or, yeah, whatever the cool thing, you know, would be right now. But that it happened to be on that planet is, again, remarkably convenient. Again, what they're saying is that Crawl, a.k.a. Captain Balthazar Edison, is just like Kirk. That every captain that signed up originally that was this kind of thrill junkie, that they would just, like, in their spare time, ride motorcycles. That it's a certain breed that becomes a captain. And that they are the same. That's why I give it more of a pass. I was enjoying what I was watching, Stuart, but I couldn't forget that it didn't feel right. And I'll mirror that. I I rolled my eyes, but I'm... Moved on. Honestly, though, I didn't find the action all that exciting, which is more damning than the fact that it happened on a bike. Good call, Arnie. The whole thing with the guy remembered that he killed her father is where I rolled my eyes. Because of all the people he's killed, he remembers this woman's father. How many people were on that crew? That whole thing completely rang false to me. And I didn't care enough about that character to want her to get her revenge on her father's killer. I know the movie wants me to, but she's such a minor character to me in this whole scheme that I don't really care. And then what I did like about that whole scene was she didn't actually get the revenge. That she chose her future over finishing the past. And I like that a lot. And they redeem that completely when they fly off the planet and they give the character the moment of watching her dream come true of getting off the planet. So that whole aspect of the fight paid off. But during the fight, it was eye roll inducing. You know, what I would say is because that character had to tell us she had parents that were killed, we aren't going to feel for her in the same way. You know, it's show me, don't tell me. Usually with films, that's the way to make those emotional connections with audiences. And yeah, this is a character that blew in, told jokes with Scotty, and all of a sudden is saying, oh yeah, I have this arc. Well, you can tell us you had this arc, but we won't really feel it. I also rolled my eyes at the fact that they were able to fix the Franklin but these weren't meant for atmospheric flight, so we have to pull a Fast and Furious move and knock it off a cliff. You don't want Sulu to do anything in this movie? I want him to do something. I'd like it to make sense. I'm not saying you guys are wrong, but I'm just going with it, guys. I, I'm having a good time. It is a contrivance, but I can't believe that you're not feeling the good Trek vibes. I feel like this thing is really getting back to its roots. Like, this movie feels like they understand something about the Roddenberry vision that J.J. Abrams never translated. And that's what I'm really enjoying. So, when they do these kinds of things that, I mean, this, what I love about the Franklin is it's so old school, the seatbelts look like chain mail or something like that. I mean, it's a real rough looking ship there. But yeah, they're going to just tip over and hope that they can get it going before they hit splat is a fun action movie contrivance. I thought it was funny because having just rewatched both of the original films, they did have those seat belts in the others, but these looked more like Klingon ceremonial garb mm, than anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. It looked like the prototype. Like, they immediately, the next generation, like, we're changing this. This doesn't feel comfortable. I did not mind the whole off-a-cliff thing as much as Arnie did. I was completely acknowledging that, okay, this kind of scene. But I loved that Sulu got that moment. I loved Sulu in the chair. But yes, how many movies have we seen that the plane goes down, the silence and the, the music even stops, the silence, and all of a sudden it goes whoosh and comes back up. I mean, I can't name all the movies I've seen in them before. Star Trek Into Darkness was one. <laughs> 
but it worked every time. And, and here, you know what? It is far-fetched that they can get a 100-year-old ship that hasn't flown in a 100 years to fly to begin with. But sure, you know what? I did like it enough, Stuart, that I wasn't not going along with it completely. But again, I was taking note that, yeah, okay. I like the way Cho plays it, because Cho's just like, of course I can fly. He's like, how dare you ask? Yeah, it was great. He was great. The thing with me is I still wasn't even wondering why is there a Federation ship here? Why is it 100 years old? Why does this guy have Starfleet files? Nothing the way this movie was telling a story had me going, hmm, that will have payoff. So when they start revealing around this time that Kral was a former Starfleet officer, that really caught me off guard. And this is muddy. I think Idris is good in this role. I feel like he has a couple good scenes, but I feel like the motive of all of these new generation villains is always a little too muddy for me. And what I heard was two different things. I heard on one hand, this is a character that resents the Federation because he helped it be created because he was a general. He was a warmonger and he fought the fight that allowed the Federation to be built. And the Federation paid him back by saying, we're now a peacekeeping mission and you just have to fly around in the ship and not kill people. And he couldn't quell that bloodlust. That what worked for him and made him a hero before the Federation made him a bad captain in the Federation and he ended up getting lost or something. I think that's one version of the character, right? Well, he thinks the Federation abandoned him. The one thing I really liked, though, I actually had to jot down some notes and make sure I was hearing him right. He was a member of Mako. Mako is a war organization from the TV series Star Trek Enterprise, which of all the TV series is the only one that still exists because it wasn't rebooted. It took place before... The Kelvin was destroyed. Hmm. And his ship, that NX-326, well, the Enterprise was NX-01. And they were talking about battling the Zindi. That was the main alien force in, like, the later seasons of Enterprise. So they really actually tied this in pretty closely to that one. And having watched and been one of the few who really enjoyed Enterprise, I found that to be a little bit easier to go with. Like, oh, he was fighting the Zindi, and, but yes, Mako was dissolved, and the Federation was an exploratory agency. And he didn't gel with it, but so what I don't like is that all of a sudden, at the same time, not only does he resent the Federation, he seems to resent the Federation for co-opting cultures, he resents the Federation for being peace and not war, but he's also mad that they abandoned him, and that part, to me, didn't fit his character, that he essentially got lost in the nebula and then turned it around by saying, they didn't rescue me, that they should have excised. And that's the only motivation of his I got. I'm like, okay, he's pissed they never sent a rescue mission. All right. So that's why he wants to kill the entire galaxy. Everything else honestly seemed like bullshit. I don't believe anything he said. I believe he's mad that he was left there for so long. To me, that's theme to me. Like, again, the theme about being on your own versus being in a collective and an assimilated group is what this movie has been about. So I feel like he is a character that is pushing back 
attack on the Federation's whole ideas. That this is as Trek as any of those old episodes where it's about social issues. We're dealing with that right now. We're having a national debate about globalism. Is it wise to continue expanding the American ideals of, of commerce and spreading it throughout our universe? I feel like this movie is tapping into that debate. You know, guys, when I was watching this movie, right around this time, I was saying to myself, I still don't understand what this villain's up to. So I'm having the same problems that Arnie was having. But at the same time, I understood that he felt abandoned. So I didn't think that was a strong enough reason for him to go through all this rigmarole. Mm -mm. And when they announced him to be the captain of the ship, and as it started to become more clear, I was like, that's it? So for being this megalomaniacal, it seems kind of weak. We had the same conversation about how good the actor did with what he had and the motivations being thin during the first Star Trek movie, 2009 Star Trek with Eric Banners. Yeah, that was terrible motive. Yeah. yeah. I understood all of it and I went along with it there. Here, it just felt thin, really thin here. And to be like so deep into this movie, not understanding why the villain is hell- so hellbent, it started really grating on me. Thank God they started explaining this before they went to Yorktown, because if we found out for the first time at Yorktown, that would have been a game changer for me for this movie. I don't think they should have made him a captain. I don't think that it makes sense that a warmonger that hated the Federation would ever sign up. Oh no, he didn't hate the Federation as a body. He just hated that he wasn't allowed to continue war. But Mako became the Federation. I mean, he's from that side. It's not like he was one of the enemies. But that's what the movie's saying is he hated what it became. He hated what it represented. I mean, he has the big line about like, this is where the border pushes back. You know, that the Federation is always pushing the boundaries. He doesn't want it to do that anymore. For reasons unknown. I mean, I, I don't get what that has to do with his his personal thing of being a warrior. Why does a warrior give a shit about exploration? One way or the other. That's what the movie is saying, that he didn't. That, in fact, what he created and what he was fighting for, in his mind, got perverted. It got changed into something else, and he resented it for it. And he didn't want to be assimilated. After fighting the wars that he fought and having the enemies that he did, he didn't want to see those enemies and him team up and be part of one big collective. He didn't want to think of himself in the same way as people he used to try to kill. And so he wanted to go on his own. And I think it would have been stronger if he chose to go into the nebula and avoid the Federation rather than this, oh, he got lost there and is mad they didn't rescue him. But he never tried to kill peacekeepers. He never tried to kill assimilators. He just, there was an active war going on. He was a warrior fighting warriors. But you know what I mean? Like, imagine the way I can compare it is like, imagine if like when the Klingons come in, there are going to be some people in the Federation that are like, no, we we don't like these guys. We don't want these guys here. We don't want to see them be a part of our group. And that's what I take, whatever it happened, and it's all done through dialogue, but that's what I take it as his real issue with the Federation is, you made peace with my enemies. We saw that in the opening scene and the aliens resented it. We're seeing it here again. I don't like your view that everything has to be part of the Federation. We are stronger when we fight, and I'm going to tear you down. I still just don't understand why he has this vendetta as much as he does. Again, the only motivation that makes sense to me is the personal one of, I've been stranded here, and I've somehow forgotten how I got here and who I am and all that. 
he does seem to be somewhat of an amnesiac. I wonder if they included that because people weren't were having these problems in test screenings and they're like, we need to give him a simpler motive. Okay, he resents being left behind. People will understand what that is. But I don't feel like that's what the character says in his many, many speeches. Too many and with the makeup and the accent, I had trouble understanding a lot of what he said. Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, I think he gives it his all, but it's a lot of makeup. And yeah, I just think that they muddy it too much. I think that there is a really compelling idea here that, again, feels very timely. It is what we are discussing right now. And I think because they kept on going in circles so long with the character and waited so late in the movie to reveal his actual motivations, it really hurt the point you're making because maybe, and and that's the big issue here. Uhura could have found this out when she broke out of the prison and that would have made that bigger. We didn't need to save it for the very end. Exactly. When she and him are talking, it's exactly when she should have been the only one who knew that information. We find out with her and then she tells them before they decide to do the whole let's plant a virus on the alien ship like an ID4 and destroy the hive mind like they do in Phantom Menace to get out of this problem before we go back to Yorktown. Oh boy, oh boy. It's not a virus though. It's sabotage. <laughs> it's, it might as well have been a Jeff Goldblum virus, but yes, it's sabotage. Once again, hooray. Of all the rap songs and all the history of mankind, she picks the one Kirk stole a car to. You know, it's no, I tying don't it back. I mean, it's, <laughs> again, for a character that's been struggling about why did I sign up? Why do I still want to do this? Getting back to that youthful spirit. Again, keep in mind there's two viruses here. There's the virus that Crawl wants to inject into the Federation, and then it's them pushing back with assimilated culture. And that's what the rap music from the 20th century really represents. And it takes everybody to get it in here. Let me tell you something, guys. When they said uh, all this thing about a thumping music, I have just a thing. I'm thinking, okay, they're going to bring back Fight the Power. And again, this whole movie, I've been talking about how they brought little things up earlier, they brought back later on, and it's a little smarter than you think it was going to be. But then they start playing Sabotage. And I'm like, well, what happened to Fight the Power? It would have worked exactly the same. It would have been on the nose, exactly the same thing as being on the nose, right? With the actual name of the song. But wouldn't it have been more sense to play Fight the Power again instead of playing Sabotage? Yes. You know, I could have gone with it either way. It was a choice to make a callback to the 2009 movie, and they didn't do that as badly. I mean, that was a major beef I had with Into Darkness, was how self-referential it was with previous Trek. And maybe, Arnie, you're saying you're picking up on things that reminded you of old shows and all that, but for casual viewers, I don't feel like this one is nearly as much of an inside joke as in darkness kind of felt like, you know, by flipping the Kirk dies like Spock and Spock does the lines that Kirk did and all of that kind of stuff that kind of irritated us about the climax of Into Darkness. I don't see them really playing that off here. If they're going to just do sabotage to me, all right, I'll give them that. Yeah, but it just felt like Justin Lin, I mean, pumping some rap music while driving real fast. The Enterprise doesn't really have to fire a shot. It just flies through the stuff. Everything's exploding. This was not Star Trek-y. And, I mean, go ahead, change Star Trek for a new generation. Abrams did it to Star Wars, and Star Trek for that matter. But this was 
resoundingly stupid for a movie that was striving for intelligence. No, I, I see it as the point. Again, they're fighting back with a song that individually was not a part of any of their history. I mean, you know, it was only because that they have known Kirk and that crew. They're fighting back with black music assimilated by white people. Yeah, I mean, what exactly. We're talking about assimilation versus, yeah, keeping your culture untouched. And that seems to be the argument here. The case being made is you are stronger as a unit. You are stronger when you pull off of each other's ideas. And we see the crew helping each other. Bones and Spock are going to pair back up again, mostly willingly. Uh, Bones is a little mad about it, but they go and hijack (laughs) a bug. And they needed to know how the ship was working so that they could create that disturbance. That they were able to send information back to Uhura and Chekhov because we got to give them something to do. And they're the ones that figure out that we can hijack it this way. That's right. When on the ship, they realize there's this signal that Beastie Boys will disrupt. Yeah, and again, I think that nobody on their own would have figured out how to do this. The the point is that they all get one little thing from Sulu flying this old ship to Ahura, you know, hailing the frequencies. Everybody does what they're good at, and when it happens, they're able to defeat an enemy who's proud to be one thing a hive mind okay there's a lot going on everybody does have something to do some of it's more important than others yeah of course always has been with Trek. i mean let's face it they they could lose some crew members and unfortunately have i mean check off this really isn't a good goodbye for him i don't feel like he gets the kind of moment knowing that this is the last we all see of anton yelchin i wish he had a better Sting, you know, I wish there was that moment that made me applaud for him, but he really doesn't get it. I went in hoping he would have a hero moment, you know, I went in Mm -hmm. hoping that he would really shine in this. And instead, like so many characters in this movie and the last, he's just kind of there. But the everyone must do their thing. You know what it reminded me of? And this is not good. Star Trek V, when Uhura does the fan dance and everybody does their thing on that planet. Well, that felt like Shatner going around and saying, hey, what do you want to do on this one? I'll let you do it. That was like him indulging the actors. It didn't really feel like characters working together to solve a problem. But yes, let's not bring up that fan dance again. (laughs) Unless it's going to be with Saldana. Saldana can do the fan dance, but Michelle Nichols... Probably should have. I'd buy a ticket just for that fan dance. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like the climax goes too long. I'm hearing you guys aren't really liking it because of Beastie Boys. I'm not liking it for a lot of reasons. Beastie Boys is the most out of place, but it's just bombastic chasing a villain that I don't really hate for a base that I don't really know. I'm completely uninvested. I'm watching and going, yeah, that's pretty. And I love the Beastie Boys, so playing it isn't an entirely bad thing. It got me probably more adrenalized than anything Lynn filmed, but I'm just not invested in what happens, and I feel no danger. Like an episode of the weekly series, when Kirk goes to fight Crawl one-on-one floating through space, the best I can hope for is an interesting fight, and it's slightly interesting, but there's no stakes. I could just sit back and be like, all right. Crawl's going to go out into space and they're going to stop this ether or Abernath or whatever you want to call the misty floaty thing in this movie. And Kirk's going to walk away just fine and be captain again. I mean, there's no mystery 
to it. I like your town. I mean, and again, I think that's why we had the husband and daughter. Like, we cut to them. They're a part of the danger. They get that reaction shot of, like, you know, so that Sulu has family that could be harmed here means something. I guess I needed Sulu in that shot to understand who I was looking at. I just thought it was general scared person. I didn't catch it was those two. But the place does feel like, I mean, just when we saw it, I just want to give a compliment to the art direction. I just feel like with the concentric rings and the gravitational all over the place, that it was populated all over and that you saw all this diversity and really it felt like America, really. Like it was like, here's everything that we ascribe to. So by attacking Yorktown, it did feel like they really were attacking the Federation, its principles, the whole idea. Like this was the strategic thing to take down. Yeah, the utopia was being threatened and I got that too. Yeah. And I like the I, everything you're saying about Yorktown is great. I actually like they went back to Yorktown for the ending of the movie mm-hmm. to tie it into the earlier thing. I like all of that stuff. I did like the way it was laid out. I kind of like the Enterprise going under the water, like coming up like a whale. I like all that stuff. Actually, played pretty well for me. Well, they didn't really destroy much of Yorktown, if you noticed. It was very, very little destruction of the buildings and things, which I think we're all kind of tired of. And I get what Arnie's saying about not a lot of stakes and danger here, because the people, the citizens, weren't really in danger, quote unquote, that we saw. It was kind of a the atmosphere. That, that's what this, this second climax is, is about. Well, they're about to be poisoned because he's going to release it into the ventilation. Yeah, that. Yeah, I'd never, never worried I about I that. I didn't care yeah. about it. You didn't care <laughs> about it. That felt like a climax too far. Like, I was enough with just knocking out the bees, but they got to do it. Again, it's about Kirk and who he could be that we have seen crawl turn back into his former self, even say, I missed my former self, and that you really feel like this is Kirk wrestling with the man he wants to be. If he continues down the path of not committing, that he could end up like Crawl is kind of what we're supposed to getting out of this battle, but mostly it just feels like, yeah, cool Inception kind of zero-gravity fight. Can you explain to me why he's turning back into Idris Elbin now, and he looked like something else earlier in the movie? He was sucking more and more life. They kept running up to desiccated bodies and saying, oh, okay, he must have been here. And so I think he was just, the more that he drains, the more he can turn back into his former self. I was of two minds. Either, first of all, when he sucked life, he could choose to change forms and he wanted it for camo. Or second, he was sucking down humans now. When he sucked down aliens, he turned more alien. And now that he was sucking on humans, he got more human. I like that second explanation more. Okay. Okay, yeah. Okay. Hey, by the way, Stuart, you said earlier about this whole warmongering thing and he was the last of a warrior. Already mentioned this whole thing about Enterprise. While you were saying that, for the first time, I think I might understand why they called the battle station, or I'm sorry, or the space station, more like it, Yorktown, because I didn't understand why they called it Yorktown. And Yorktown was the last battle, as you guys probably know, of the Revolutionary War. Oh, you're right. I knew it. I knew it from some history lesson, but I'm yeah. ashamed to admit I couldn't have named that as Revolutionary War. But you're right. That has to be why they picked it. It's symbolic. I actually thought it was because... Roddenberry, before it was the Enterprise, he wanted the ship to be called the Yorktown. Oh, well, I, that could be it. I grew up in New York, you know, and Yorktown mm-hmm. was pretty close to where I grew up, so I kind of know what Yorktown is. A lot of the Battle of Yorktown with George Washington, all things. But yeah, if if it's because of what Arnie just said, it's probably more likely than I'm, I'm maybe giving them. No, too much I think credit. it can be both. I mean, I think that this movie is 
playing fun with references, but I do, I definitely see that this is tying up, it's a thematic battle as well as, uh, you know, a referential battle that, again, I, to me, they feel like there are big stakes that are going on here, but not personal ones. Right, right. And so maybe what's given the credit they may, may or may not deserve, let's give it to them. Right. <laughs> We're giving them so much of this movie anyway, let's give it to that too. But yeah, they eventually he gets sucked out and and Spock reunites with Kirk and and we get those two those were really the two main quitters. I mean, honestly, if Sulu wants to stay behind with his husband, they can find somebody <laughs> else. <laughs> They're going to find a new Trek off. We cannot have another Trek movie without Spock and Kirk together. So, you know, we Spock has what I think is a really nice moment going through Leonard Nimoy's personal effects and seeing that picture of the old crew and realizing that your assimilated family can mean just as much as your birth world. That scene made me really sad because I'm looking at that picture and first of all, I was trying to figure out if it was Star Trek five or six. I'm pretty sure it was six, though. Six. <laughs> and second of all, how many of them are now dead? That was the really sad thing. And the fact that those that remain probably aren't too far behind those that are gone. That really depressed me. Yeah, well, and, and I think this movie does deal with that. I mean, keep in mind, Spock nearly died on this. And a version of himself is dead. So I think that he has been wrestling with mortality and the meaning of his life and what he has decided, and I think it's one that we all wanted him to, was that he doesn't have to feel bad that if he hangs out with people that aren't Vulcans, that that doesn't make him less Vulcan or make him unworthy of what he dedicates himself to. That said, he should still probably bang some Vulcans to help procreate the species. I don't know. Saldana seemed like she was ready to come back towards the end there. I think they're back on. But Stuart, it's only logical. <laughs> and Kirk, of course, tells uh, Commodore Paris that that job you want to give me, the desk job, I don't want it. I want to have fun. I enjoy what I do. I want to blast off into the nebula. They're going to rebuild the ship and I'm going to have a birthday party. How cool was that time lapse of building the ship? That was awesome. It was awesome. Oh, boy. I actually didn't like it. I wish. Well, <laughs> I didn't like it because it just looked too time lapsey. It was like watching the fungus grow on the apple. It felt out of place. Uh, okay. I mean, I'd rather have that, Arnie, than have 12 minutes of us looking at the Enterprise as the Kirk and crew fly right by it for in the Robert Wise original Star Trek movie. You know what? I would prefer 12 minutes if the score was as good as Robert Wise's film. The score here is abysmal. It, I mean, when the ship is crashing and they're trying to do, like, this orchestral funeral dirge of the original, ah. <laughs> Oh, my God. <laughs> I think you pay attention to scores maybe more than I do. And what I've noticed is that I've come to to know it. When I reviewed the original 2009, I was surprised that it didn't feel like a march or an anthem. And I'm like, well, this is all just mood music. And now I actually can hum the Star Trek theme. I do feel like this crew has found its own theme. And it's it's an inclusive party. I want to point out, Jayla was brought back. She's going to join Starfleet. And even the... Tanaxi from the very beginning is there. You know, he still refuses <laughs> to wear pants, but he is assimilated too. And again, I like this federation. There were two Tanaxi that came on board, though, so I wonder what happened to the second one. <laughs> it didn't work out so well. You know, <laughs> sometimes they go back. I don't know. The green slave girl down the down the down the way. There uh, we go. You know, Stuart, I had, I had the same comment on the music. I actually felt that the theme came through very strongly here, and I remember what you said on that first podcast. And Arnie, I had the same thought you did with the woo. -woo, -woo, -woo. 
I kind of like that they combined both of them, and I think they did this in Into Darkness, too. Yeah, they did it at the end of the very first one, and I don't like this composer very well, but I really did, and from the very first watching, love his new Star Trek theme that came in the 2009 film. It's when it's not that theme that I really have problems, although that theme is here in in part. They weave it in. Yes, no, and I like that. You know what he did here, though, and I bet it's intentional, and it just didn't quite work for me because it's 50 years later. The music, especially when Crawl and his people are infiltrating the Enterprise, sounded like it came right out of that 60s series. Like, with the screaming strings and everything, I mean, it might as well have been the woo-woo-woo of Pon Far and all that. You know what else they did here with the music? They put in a pop song. Rihanna gets the closing credits. Holla! Do you guys at all believe that Rihanna's a Trekkie? Because she came out and was like, I'm so excited. I love Star Trek. That was another part of the bad marketing. It's like, I don't believe you. What's your favorite captain? Can you name one? I just, yeah, she's wearing, they put her in a shirt. You got to go look at this video. It's hilarious. She like, basically, I love the Trek because I would look at the Trek and I didn't know what it was, but I thought, what is the Trek? I'm like, you don't even know what you're saying right now. You just sang the song. And then she goes, holla. I'm like, couldn't you say live long and prosper? Could you at least pretend like you know this? Live long and prosper! (laughs) (laughs) No, and the song's weird, you know, like she's talking about hitting walls and hurting myself and lying in pools of tears. I'm like, is this song about Chris Brown or is this about Star Trek? Every Rihanna song is like that. I I like Rihanna. I like a lot of her music. But that song, maybe it's just because she was... A fake Trekkie at that moment, and I just couldn't get behind it. I thought it worked within the context. I mean, but I hadn't seen Star Trek try to have a top 40 hit before, and so that was a surprising note to go out on. You said it works within the context? The context of the credits? Uh, What context is there? Yeah, hitting a wall. I I do feel like these were characters that hit a wall and felt like they didn't know if they could go forward. It, it, It actually seemed to work better than when I watched the music video before I saw the movie and was like, what the hell is this? I don't see any context at all for Rihanna's song. In fact, I didn't even want to wait to the end of the credits like I normally do for just, you know, I've been trained that way, as I said, in these other Trek podcasts. I always wait to the end of the credits. Now, I got up and left. The song was forgettable. I do like some of Rihanna's songs when I hear them, but I, I this one, I just was kind of fell flat to me, and so I just left. I stayed... The song was whatever. I like that they included a floating green hand. Yeah, you know, and I felt like she sang it. I mean, Rihanna doesn't have the best pipes in the business. I mean, I just (laughs) want to say her vocal range is pretty thin, but I felt like she belted this one. She tried to go for the big notes, and I'll be, I think I'm just nicer to this movie in general. That's the vibe I'm getting here. I think that you have reversed your arrows on the first two, so you're just going in with kid gloves. No, no, no. (laughs) I mean, let's get to it. Yeah. Uh, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Star Trek Beyond? Stuart. Yeah, I mean, a happy surprise. I went into this movie believing with all my heart that it was going to kill this franchise, that we wouldn't have another Trek movie for 10 years, that they were just going to launch a new TV series and forget Chris Pine and Quinto and all of it because this one would stink up the screen so bad. And I am happy to announce that I think this is... One of the very best. It's definitely, for me, the best of this new crew. Of the 2009 Into Darkness and this, easily, this is the one that gets the rhythms, the characters, the interplay. It has action, but it doesn't feel overloaded with it. 
And I just think that it, it it's just a good showcase for this ensemble. And I also think that it ranks up there with, yeah, a really solid episode. I mean, Trek movies aren't great, by and large. When I look at them beyond Khan, most of them kind of are, you know, middling. They, they have their good points and they're bad. But I do think that this is one of the best. And I wasn't expecting to find that. But I hope that this crew continues on. I hope Peg writes the next one. I hope Justin Lin comes back and directs it. I think that this is more successful than what Abrams started with. So it's a st- solid recommend. Arnie. I am so blasé about this film because if it were an episode of a Trek series, I think I'd probably think it's a fine episode. I mean, to use a more Trek-specific analogy, when they make a movie, I want it to feel like a Sweeps Week episode. You know, I want to feel like it's important and monumental and Picard turning into a Borg or War in the Klingon Empire. I want something big. And this episode felt like that episode you do right after sweeps when you've spent a lot of money on the last couple episodes. And so you kind of want to bring it in and do a smaller, more personable story like Picard going back to France after being Locutus. Only this movie didn't even have that kind of emotional depth. And I think that's the problem with Trek as a movie series versus a TV series With a movie series, I don't want these down episodes. I want them to be spectacles. Whereas in a TV series, I'm going to be a lot more patient for the character building episodes. I don't think Lynn got the balance right here. But it goes back to what Stuart said at the very beginning. He's more forgiving of Trek when it's on the small screen and watching multiple screens at once. I think this movie would benefit from being a television episode, even if it's a good television episode, like what you get on HBO or A&E. Being in a big screen environment with 3D glasses on and just living with this movie... I don't feel it had enough engagement there. It's not that this is a bad movie. There's a few irksome things. I won't say anything in this movie is bad. Some of it just is not great. Is more not working than working, though. What works, works moderately. There's nothing, nothing in this movie that's great. There's a lot in this movie that's fine. And so, I mean, I'm really... Right on the edge. (laughs) You sound like me in the 2009 review. Are you going to red arrow this? I am. I didn't get into this movie. And really, when I think back on all the Trek films, it's ranking down there. I mean, I recommended far more than I didn't in that series. But this one, yeah, it's a not recommend. Wow. I'm going to recommend the movie, but I saw the movie closer to what Arnie saw than what Stuart did. I really enjoyed a lot of moments. There was that moment when Kirk watched the Enterprise die. There's a moment when Jayla watched her planet. There's all those great McCoy stuff. Plenty of good things in here. But as the movie went on, it got harder and harder to stay with it. it I, was, I wasn't giving any mulligans. I wasn't giving any uh, excuses. I was enjoying what I was watching fine for the most part. But the longer it went on... I mean, if this went on about 20 more minutes, it would be a definitely not recommend for me. So it's a recommend. It's uh, it's in the middle of the road for me, though, as far as Trek goes. I could watch this again and be fine with it. When it comes on home video or whatever, I'm going to watch it with the wife and we'll enjoy it fine, I'm sure. I, I like the 2009 more than this one. I dislike Into Darkness so much that this is before that one for me. But as far as where it ranks in the grand scheme, 
I like it more than Insurrection, uh, but less than First Contact. You know, somewhere around the world of The Voyage Home. I wasn't as big as you guys were on The Voyage Home, the, the whales one. So, and this one had this whale moment, didn't it? So, somewhere around there, that it was, it's fine. I, I can watch it and enjoy it fine. There's some great moments, but um, it's a recommend. It's just not the world's greatest Star Trek film. I am happy they dialed it back from the Into Darkness place. And I kind of liked that sort of thing with Bones uh, really saving this movie for me. I don't even know they're going to have a next movie, guys. So Yeah, but that was my question. Hearing you guys being lukewarm to unkind to what I feel like is a fun party, if not a great film. I admit it's not great, but it is fun. I'm ready for more. But are you guys, are you excited about the announced we're bringing back Thor and doing a time travel storyline part four that they may or may not do? I am. I talked to some friends of mine, and I'm pretty convinced they're going to be doing City on the Edge of Forever, and I would love that. That's the thing, is this didn't tie, despite a million Easter eggs, to anything before. It tried to do something new, and in that way, yeah, it was Nemesis. It was Insurrection. And it made me really excited for the upcoming series, because I'm like, you know... I would like the Star Trek Discovery to have a story like this, but for the big screen, you've got to go bigger. I go back to what I was told in my writing class. When you write a story or a novel, you should write about the most important moments in somebody's life. It really should be a reason to tell a story, and I don't feel this was important to anybody. That's fine for an episode of a series, but not for a movie that you're going to charge me $14 to see. And so you're excited to see Kirk dredge up his father complex again? and Or is it just the idea that we're going to have Hemsworth and Pine together? The Chris's reunited. I like Trek when they time travel. They've done it quite a bit. And they're some of my favorite movies. Four and First Contact and 2009. Generations. I mean, they do it on almost all of them. I think I'm on the record as complaining most of the times of its contrivance. You know, I'm open to it. Like I said, I don't feel like they need to add a gimmick. I want to see this crew. I'm fine with just another episode, but I hear what you're saying. I want this crew back, too. I do not want this to end. This is a middling not recommend. This isn't a scathing, holy crap, what did they do? Stop it now. (laughs) Yeah, that would be Star Trek V or Nemesis or Motion Picture. To me, those are the stinkers. This isn't those. This is... More along the lines of some of those where it's like you walk out and it's, okay, let's see what you do next time. And I just hope they have a stronger story, bigger stakes. Uh, To me, this is definitely the weakest of this new trilogy by far. It's a descending slope, though, and that is worrisome. For me, I rank this new series as one, two, three. Early in the series, you talked about how they went from one track to another. If the la- if the one made money, then they make the next one, etc. Well, I went on Box Office Mojo. I looked, took a look at this. And one of the things I think, and I agree with you both, I think I want to see this crew do another movie. I like this crew and I like these characters as they are now, very much. But the last two, if you go by the axiom of you have to make double the movie's budget or the announced budget to turn a profit... Both the first two Trek movies in the series barely did that with international grosses included. So if you have to make double $185 million with international grosses, the last time it did it by like 50 bucks, quote unquote, like 50 million. Like it was very little money. It's not limited to Star Trek. If you look at the box office this summer, 
I think there's too many franchises. I think there are too many very expensive movies that need to make giant sums that are finding that the audience is only half there that they need. Even Batman v Superman, that movie was going to be disappointed at less than a billion and it got 800 million. I mean, I think Hollywood is worried that television is taking over. And the fact that there is going to be a new Trek series, that may be what really kills the film series. TV is killing the movie star. Oh, no, I think it's going to help it. There is some weird politicking going on, because whereas the film and the TV people used to be together, they're at war now. They're in competition Mm -hmm. with each other. Those CBS people are not happy with the Paramount people and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So whatever licensing agreement has, Trek may become like Fantastic Four, where Paramount just keeps putting out a film every few years to not let CBS get total control again. Hmm. Well, can I be excited about both? I mean, I think Brian Fuller is a talented TV showrunner, and I liked his Hannibal. So if he's going to take on Star Trek, so be it. And again, is Abrams coming back? I heard that he might be involved. He's going to produce, he says, the story for four. And the fact that they've signed Hemsworth, because you don't announce Hemsworth without signing him. The fact that they've signed Hemsworth and that J.J. says the story for four is the best story yet makes me think even if this movie disappoints in the box office. They're going to risk it. It's kind of like an X-Men First Class thing. Yeah. Where X-Men First Class didn't do gangbusters, but the studio knew they had a franchise, came back, hit stronger, and got their top grossing X-Men film ever with Days of Future Past. I have a feeling that maybe it's three years, probably, but we'll be seeing this crew one last time at least. They've got Quinto and Pine signed. None <laughs> of the others have a film, and God only knows if Zoe Saldana can be free. We might have an Uhura list film, because she's got like three avatars and eight Marvel movies up her sleeve. I also heard that they weren't going to recast Chekhov. No. And that's the right thing to do. Yeah, I agree. I mean, they could. I mean, honestly, I don't feel like he defined the role. I don't think Chekhov is a defining character, but I think that that is the way to honor. You know, he they mentioned him in the credits for Anton. They're like, for Leonard Nepoy, oh, and Anton. God damn it, we gotta do two. You know, we wanted this to be dedicated just to Nimoy. It's so clear, but... It's good that they were able to get Anton in the credits in time, though. I mean, this was very recent. And I was also really happy with the way the movie ended after the time-lapse thing. We get the space, the final frontier, spoken by all the members of the main cast. And I was listening. I'm like, will we get Chekhov in there? And sure enough, Anton got a few lines. And I think that's a really sweet note for him to end on with what was previously called the captain's oath i agree with you thought was a nice way to respect yeah yeah it's a nice send-off especially since they're now going to have to go into a future without anton yelchin but well you shouldn't recast the role yeah uh, necessarily but you're gonna have someone in his place you're gonna have a you know and that else yeah it'd be a great opportunity to have a savic or something star trek the cartoon had a monster Walter Koenig wrote an episode, but Chekhov wasn't in it. I want them to go to that cartoon and Mm -hmm. CGI the new weapons guy. Yeah, they could pull from a lot of history. It's 50 years old, guys. And yeah, I think it might be middle-aged and questioning where it's going to go. But I think it will continue to live. I think it will live long and prosper. I think Savick would be a great idea because that way you can have the whole tension with Quinto with Savick. Ooh, she'd probably be still a child, but... Interesting thought. Yeah. Uh, Ensign Savick. I mean, she was Lieutenant Savick, and Vulcans do live a hell of a long time. 
So assuming she's one of the 10,000 that escaped the planet or a child of them, that could be really interesting. I always liked Savick. But no, there's other options at hand, and I'm going to miss Anton Yelchin. I really liked him in Green Room and Fright Night and this. And it, it is sad. He was great in Charlie Bartley. If you haven't seen that one, check that out. Yes. Yes, he was good in that. But I'm excited to see whatever they do. I agree with Stuart. I'm really excited for Star Trek Discovery. Brian Fuller is one of my favorite recent television creators. He did Pushing Daisies, which is like one of my all-time favorite shows. He worked on Trek, too. He worked on the good seasons of Deep Space Nine. He knows Trek. And I also, I must confess, it's just nice to be able to watch something and not feel like, oh, I got to go do a show about it. Let me take notes. You know, the fact we don't do TV. So we've been doing a lot of movies. I feel like- We don't like, do TV? Well, yes. I mean, the donors <laughs> know that we do have some plans for next year, but that's, again, only for our special summer spring donors 2016 is coming to an end this weekend. You only have a few days, a few hours, really, before Independence Day, Men in Black, Ghostbusters, and all the films that we covered from 1986 that were part of a sci-fi labyrinth, Big Trouble in Little China, you name it, we covered it. All of those shows go in a vault in just a couple days and they will be gone. And only the people that have donated will get to hear all our thoughts on what has been a, a cram-packed... I wouldn't change it for the world. I really did enjoy a lot of those shows. But man, it's a lot of material. Some of my favorite shows we've done from this year, though, are in those series. Each level. Silver, I really enjoyed the Independence Day conversation. It was a little more contentious than I expected. <laughs> it was fun. I agree. That's a fun show. Gold Space Camp. Who would have thunk it, but Space Camp. <laughs> that was a great conversation. <laughs> it was fun. I liked all of it. I mean, I just like going back to the summer of 1986. I do think it is one of the great summer movie seasons of all time. So, yeah, that was fun. And Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters 1, though, was like a conversation I'm as happy with as I am that movie. So definitely remember these things like the bonus show we did this week so that we could get Trek out this week, not go with Tuesday without a show, but still give Trek the time and consideration it deserved. This is all thanks to donors. We go above and beyond, and some of our listeners, 1% or less, go above and beyond. But if you enjoy what we do week after week, your money goes to the show. We've got some big plans coming up. We've only re revealed, even to donors, a fraction of them. But we're ambitious, and you guys help us keep growing. We want to keep growing. So thank you in advance if you can support our show. And... Remember, we're asking for donations for the show we do every week. We're not asking to get donated to just for these bonus shows. It's a thank you. We are not selling these podcasts. Just think about we've done how many shows on the main free feed so far this year, and it's just coming up to the end of July. So you have until July 31st. Click the banner at the top of nowplayingpodcast.com. And then we'll be back with you with another theatrical release, wrapping up Jason Bourne next Tuesday. It's open now. We'll be back in like five days. Well, until that moment happens, everybody, live long and prosper. Dude. Space. The final frontier. 
These are the continuing voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Your ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life forms and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Look Back at all the films in the Star Trek series. Be sure to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for another podcast movie review. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, NowPlayingPodcast.com. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyright and trademark Paramount Pictures, all rights reserved. Now Playing is not affiliated with Paramount Pictures. Now Playing is a production of Venganza Media Incorporated, copyright 2016, all rights reserved. Gentlemen, your work today has been outstanding. I tend to recommend you all for promotion in whatever fleet we end up serving. Nope. Simon said he didn't even read it. Simon <laughs> said. <laughs> An alien named Kalara claims to be from a science mission, and her ship crashed in a nearby nebula. I thought I could push that one through, and it just wouldn't go. An alien named Kalara claims to be claims to have escaped from a crashing ship on a science nebula in the nearby nebula. <laughs> That's not it. Yeah, nebula and nebula. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you said the planet crashed, but anyway, it's fine. You know, you'll you'll figure it out. <laughs> no, all right, Fix it in post. No, let me say You're gonna do it now? Yeah. yeah. Take a while. Do you have any idea how hard it is to fix it in post? It's thirty The words fix it in post is like the world's worst thing you can say to an editor. Yes. <laughs> but he's the editor. An alien named Kalara claims to be on a s- told the story literally but instead they t- uh, literally literally did i say linearly. correctly Lin- you did well linearly, you said literally yeah. you mean linearly. i did i meant li- exactly right arnie. i heard Thank you. i heard linearly but i kind of right. mumbled it like arnie did try to try to power through it didn't work let me try it again <laughs> um but th- if they told the story literally literally <laughs> if they told the story if they told the story straight instead of try- <laughs> let me try one more time if they told the story literally <laughs> Chronologically, maybe? Okay, if they told the story chronologically instead of taking little pieces and parts and trying to make a mystery out of it, this movie would be 10 minutes long. Oh, then chronologically doesn't work for that. No, okay. If they told the story... Straightforwardly. In a straightforward manner. Let's do it that way. You you know my point. I just want to make the damn point. If (laughs) if they told the story in a straightforward manner... (laughs) 
Yeah, part one? Are you kidding me? That's easily the worst. <laughs> I actually have come around and like that movie quite a bit, especially with the director's cut, and even more after seeing 2001. Oh, wow. Hmm, see, wow. I feel like when you see 2001, there's no point in watching Star Trek The Motion Picture. Arnie, if you got the plot, we can get into Star Trek Beyond. What I have is a sneeze on deck, so one moment. <laughs> Into Darkness came out in 2013, not 2012, so that's three years. And you've been oh, saying yeah. four. All right. Well, then I can just He'll go. He'll fix it in post. Three years, because I said four years, like the bears. <laughs>